After you place your marker there, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, that will be our first reading this morning. Or I guess if you really want to, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians, right Luke? And we can read from there as well. Certainly it's good to see everyone here. It's kind of funny looking over at this side. Half the congregation is gone from this side. But I know that praying that Jacob and them do a really good job at West Rogersville, as I'm sure they will. And pray that they have a safe trip back. But we are grateful that you're here. We do have a good number, at least on this side. And we are grateful that, that you're here this morning. A couple of weeks ago, I was asked to speak at a vacation Bible school in Oakland. And since no one was able to make it out, no one's heard this lesson yet, I thought it would be a good opportunity to present this lesson that I presented there. It's a very timely lesson and one that I think that there are a lot of good applications for us to draw and a lot of good things that we can look at to encourage us to help us be better prepared to be servants of God. The theme for the Vacation Bible School at Oakland was, well, that doesn't work, was the battle belongs to the Lord. I really love that theme, and it's kind of funny because I know at least one other VBS that used the same theme. It's very popular, the idea of the battle belongs to the Lord. One of the reasons I like it is because as we think about the life of a Christian, being a soldier is not something that we necessarily like to think about. We don't like the idea of fighting or having to contend, but we recognize that the Bible tells us that that's exactly what God expects of us. As we think about being a Christian, we recognize that we are to contend earnestly for the faith, as Paul tells Titus. Well, here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul makes the same, same comment here, starting in verse 3. He says, You therefore must endure hardships as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul makes it very clear that part of being a Christian is we have to be a good soldier for God. We have to be a good soldier for Christ. Now, we recognize that this is not talking about a physical war. God does not expect us to take up swords and spears and shields and go and fight a physical army, nor as in today does he expect us to get our guns and go out and start trying to fight people. No, that's not what God is talking about. We recognize that our warfare is spiritual. That is what God expects us to fight, a spiritual war, a spiritual battle against the world and against Satan. Going back to the theme of the, of the VBS, when we think about the idea the battle belongs to the Lord, how comforting is it to know that God is the one who is fighting this battle? When we say that the battle belongs to the Lord, think about how comforting that should be to us to know that God does not expect us to win the war on our own strength. God does not expect us to do this by ourselves. No, God has given us everything that we need. We're not going to take the time to turn to these passages this morning. These are very familiar passages. But in Ephesians chapter 6, we understand that God has given us all the armor that we need, right? He has given us the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the girdle of truth. We've shod our feet with the preparation of peace of the gospel, the shield of faith. God has given us the armor to protect ourselves. Well, also there in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, it tells us that God has given us our weapon. We have the sword of the Spirit, right? Which is the Word of God. And let us not ever underestimate the power of the weapon that God has given us. In the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
God has given us a weapon that we need. Well, that's not all God has given us. Me personally, I never served in the military, but I know that anybody who has or anybody who has any understanding of the military, you have orders. The entire life in the military is all about doing what your commander or who person in charge, doing what they told you to do, right? You have orders and you have to follow those orders. Well, God has given us our orders, right? John 14 and verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. God has told us what he expects of us. God has told us what he, what he wants us to do. So we have our orders from God. And one more thing as we think about the battle belongs to the Lord. Probably the most comforting thing of all, not the armor, not the weapon, not the orders, but the fact that God has told us he will never leave us nor forsake us. God has not left us alone and said, well, good luck. God has not told us, well, I hope it goes okay for you. No, God is there with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So the battle belongs to God. The specific topic that I was given for this VBS was the Lord is providing victory. Now, if you remember a couple of months ago, uh, one of the singings, I believe it was, I kind of gave you a little preview of, of what I was planning to talk about with this. So while th this part may seem a little, uh, you may remember some of this part, but I think one of the first things you need to understand when we think about the idea of the Lord is providing victory, I think we need to go back and define what a victory is. How do we define victory? Any preacher or teacher, myself included, we always talk about how we as a people, as a society, we love to overuse words. We overuse words so much, in fact, that what happens is that the meaning of the word is lessened. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing because we overuse it so much. One of the words that we always talk about is the word awesome, right? How many times do we use that word and we say something was awesome? Oh, that television show or that movie I watched, it was awesome. Oh, that, that sporting event, that football game, basketball game, baseball game, whatever it is, it was awesome. Our God is an awesome God. Now, are, are we saying that, that we think God is, is as good as a movie? Are we, see, are we saying that we think God is, is equal to a football team or some other sport team? Well, obviously not. But we overuse that word so much that maybe it doesn't have the same meaning to us. Well, can I suggest to you this morning that I think victory is another word that we overuse. We overuse that word so much, and I think that it has lost, it's undervalued what true victory is. Think about some of the common ways that people use victory. You think about the idea of a moral victory. It never fails. You always hear at some, some press conference when the coach is being asked questions, his team lost. But the coach always says, well, you know, we played a good game, and even though we, we didn't win, it was still a moral victory for us. What is that? What's a moral victory? Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe that there are a lot of lessons to be learned when we lose. In fact, I would dare say that there are more lessons to learn when we lose than when we win. 
So I'm not suggesting that's something that we can't learn from. But you lost. We understand that. Even from the youngest people here, if you were to say, hey, did you watch a, a baseball game? Which team won? Well, the team with the most runs, right? I mean, that's obvious. So how can we talk about a moral victory? One of my favorite to kind of pick on was a couple of years ago when Butch Jones was the, the head coach at Tennessee. He was raked over the coals because of some of the things that he said in his press conferences. And one of his most famous quotes was, well, we didn't win a national championship, but our players are champions of life. People mocked him. People ridiculed because of how ridiculous that sounded. I'm sorry, did Tennessee win a division? They haven't won the SEC East in a long time. If you're a Tennessee fan, I apologize. Did they win the SEC championship? Didn't come close. Okay, well, if they didn't win that, then obviously they weren't national champions. So were you a champion? Not really, but, but we were champions of life. It doesn't make sense, does it? Call it what it is. Your team wasn't that good. Your team lost. Don't try to, don't try to pretty it up. You know, what do we often say? Don't put lipstick on a pig. Don't try to make it look pretty. You lost. But we often use that phrase, it was a moral victory, because it sounds better. It just sounds better. It was a moral victory. You ever heard this one, a Pyrrhic victory? This was named after Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus. Say that five times fast. But he went up against Rome, fought a few battles, and he won the battle, but at the cost of the majority of his army. And so we use this term, a Pyrrhic victory, to mean, well, you won a few battles, but ultimately you lost the war. What good is that? If you were to give a, a commander the option, well, would you want to win a couple of battles or would you want to win the war? Oh, that's a silly question. I want to win the war. So once again, did you win? No. We won a little bit, but you lost the war. Is that a victory? <laughs> no. Let me give you one more. What about a partial victory? Now, this is one that we are hearing more and more in the news. You think about the situation in Ukraine. How many news reports have we seen where Russian commanders are saying, well, it's been a partial victory? No, it's not. You're losing. You were supposed to go and defeat an inferior country in just a matter of, of days, and it's been, what, three, four months now? But it's a partial victory. See, we try to spin it. We try to make it sound better. Well, we didn't win what we wanted to. We didn't get enough victories to say that it was an absolute victory. But we also didn't have enough defeats where we're going to say that we lost. So we're going to call it a partial victory. It doesn't make sense, does it? Once again, you either won or you lost. But no, we want to we play it down. We want to make it sound better than what it is. Do you understand what I mean when I say that we have undervalued what the word victory means? Now, I want to ask you the question, what kind of victory does God provide? Does God provide us a moral victory against Satan? Well, you know, Satan is, is you know, we didn't really win against Satan, but it was a moral victory for my people. Is, is that the victory God gives us? Is God's battle against Satan so taxing that, that he's going to be just so weakened after his, his war with Satan? No. 
Is it a partial victory that God gives us? Well, you know, some of it we're going to win. Uh, some of it we're not. Is that the victory God gives us? No. We recognize that. There are three stories in the Bible that I want to look at that show that God provides victory. Once again, these are stories that we're very familiar with, but things that really show us how God provides us the victory. First one. Think about Israel's victory over Jericho. Go to Joshua chapter 6. Once again, for time's sake, we're not going to take the time and read all of these passages. I would recommend you write them down and go back and look at them. But if you remember in, in your Bible history, Joshua has crossed the Jordan River. And in chapter 5, at the end of it, the commander of the Lord's army comes to him. Now, we're not going to get into who that is. But it comes to him and, and talks about how God is going to give Israel the land. Well, here in chapter 6, notice in verse 2, this is God speaking again to Joshua. He says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. Now, that's an interesting phrase that God uses there, isn't it? I have given. I am not an English major. I am not someone who studies grammar. I'm an engineer. I do math good. But when I went and looked this up, and, and those of you that, that knew no grammar better than I, Kim, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. But when you look at that phrase, have given, it's present perfect tense. Now, once again, if you're not an English major and have no clue what that means, let me explain what present perfect tense is. This is something that hasn't happened yet, but it is spoken as though it has already ha occurred or happened. So here in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 2, does Israel have Jericho yet? No. The walls are still up. The inhabitants of Jericho are still there. But once again, notice the way that God describes this. I've given it to you. It's a foregone conclusion that you're going to take this city. Now, I think there's a very important lesson for us here. God said the city's yours, right? Well, does that mean that Israel could just sit down and, you know, get out a, a lawn chair and be like, all right, God, I'm ready to take the city. Give it to me. You know, even though God had promised it, they still had something to do, right? I think about this when I think about Noah. Noah, I'm going to save you and your family, but you have to build an ark. Well, if Noah hadn't built an ark, would he have been saved? Well, of course not. Even though God speaks of this as it's already happened, Israel still had obligations to do. They still had something to do. And let's read about what they had to do. No, starting in verse 3 again. It says, you shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight, to, uh, straight before him. In what military manual 
Are you going to see this as a tactic for taking a fortified city? In what writing of antiquity other than the Bible are you going to find anyone that was able to take a city by just walking around the walls? For six days, they would march around in silence. I want you to put yourself in the shoe of one of the defenders of Jericho. Remember, they knew about the people, right? They knew what God had done to Israel. Forty years after, they still understood what God had done to the Egyptians. But as we know, Rahab, right? And how she was afraid. And she, that's why she bartered and she, she saved her family. But put yourself in the shoes of a defender of Jericho. There you are. You know these people are coming. You're ready to defend your home. This is your city. This is your family, your people. You're standing there and you see them coming and the adrenaline's pumping. You're like, here they come. We're ready to fight. And yet all they're doing is marching. And they're quiet. What are they doing? And they march around once, and you're watching them thinking, what is this? And you're ready, you're, the, the attack, you're anticipating at any moment the arrows or the slingshots or something's going to start happening, happening right? <laughs> they leave. Okay, the second day. All right, stand at the wall. Here they come. They're doing the same thing again. Could you not imagine by the third or fourth day that the defenders would be like, well, here come those crazy Israelites again. Here come these really silly people. It's like, oh, we don't have to worry about them. And they're just going to walk around the city. Okay, well, what's so scary about this? Do you get that? I get that image. Do you get that image? But then on that seventh day, they march around seven times. After the seventh time, they blow the trumpets. The people shout, and what happens? The walls fall down. Everyone except Rahab and her family are destroyed. Does God provide victory? <laughs> yes. Does he do it the way that we think it would happen? No. But God provides victory. Let me give you the second story. Let's think about Israel's defeat at Ai. Now, I know what you're thinking. This was supposed to be a lesson about God providing victory, right? Well, why are we talking about a defeat? We'll get to that. Put yourself in, in Joshua's shoes. Think about the emotional high that you would be in at this point. Your army has just conquered a fortified city. And it was a rout, right? I mean, this wasn't a close battle. This wasn't any time where victory wasn't assured. You have conquered this city. Think about how confident you must be feeling. How, how man, we're... We're invincible, right? And I think that's what you see here. Because we're going to skip verse 1. We'll get back to verse 1 in just a moment. Let's skip down to verse 2 of chapter 7. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of, the Bethel, of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. Now, thinking about that emotional high, that feeling of, Ooh, look what we did. Do you not get that sense when the spies give their report? Look in verse 3. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. 
when you read that, do you just not get this picture of these men? Oh, this city's going to be nothing. We took Jericho. <laughs> this city's nothing like Jericho. You know, you know, let's not even send the whole army. It, it would just be, it's just not worth it. Just send about two or 3,000 men, and that's what they do. Verse 4. 3,000 men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Now, here's my question in that reading. Where is it mentioned that they went to God and asked God how to take Ai? He wasn't consulted, was he? Oh, no, the people felt confident. The people were like, oh, look what we can do. We took Jericho, so now we can take Ai. Uh, where was God in this? He wasn't consulted. If he had been consulted, guess what he would have told them? Back in verse 1. The children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. When Israel took Jericho, the command was that the people were to take nothing from Jericho. It was to go to the Lord. That was the commandment. But here we see their sin in the camp. Their sin in the camp. If they would have asked God, God would have told them about this sin, but, but they didn't ask God. They thought they could get victory on their own. Could you imagine? I keep hitting the button. Could you imagine the people... Why did we? Why were we able to take Jericho, but we lost to Ai? You know, why did this happen? Once again, we're not going to read it, but if you go and you read Joshua's response, remember Joshua, he tears his clothes, he prostrates before God and just says, what am I going to do? I love God's response, don't you? Get up. Why are you lying on your face? Get up. There's sin in the camp. That's God's response. Why didn't they take the city? Because God was not with them. Look at verse 12. This is God speaking to Joshua. In verse 10, he says, get up. In verse 11, Israel has sinned. And in verse 12, therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. At the end of the verse, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Joshua learned a very hard lesson that day. We saw in Jericho that the Lord provides victory. Here we see Joshua learns the opposite. Without God, there is no victory. Now we recognize that after, after they got the sin out of their camp, God does deliver the city of Ai to them. But without God, there is no victory. Let me give you the third story. What about David and Goliath? That's just a great story, is it not? We love this story. We tell our kids this story all the time about David and Goliath. Well, let's read a few things about it. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17. And I want us to look at the description of Goliath. In chapter 17, starting in verse 4, it says, a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 
Now, if you're not up to date with how big a cubit is and how tall this man would have been, let me just tell you, he would have been over nine feet tall. That's how big this man would have been. The tallest basketball player that ever played was seven foot seven. Yao Ming, who was really popular when I was growing up, he was seven foot five. Add another two feet to the tallest basketball player, and that's how big Goliath was. That's a big man. Not only was he big, look there in verse 5. It says he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And that's hundreds of pounds of armor. In the U.S. military, the average soldier carries about between 40 to 60 pounds between armor and, and ammunition and everything. And one of the things I always talk about is they're trying to lighten that load because it, it hurts the soldier's effectiveness, right? They're trying to find ways to lighten that. They, they can't do it. But 40 to 60 pounds is about the average of what a soldier carries, sometimes more depending on what their unit is. Goliath... <laughs> About twice that much, three times that much. That's what, how much this man is carrying. And that's just in the armor. Look at verse 6. He had a bronze, uh, and he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a, sheer, a shield bearer went before him. Having read all that, that's a big man. That's a strong man. <laughs> That's a scary man. And so you can understand why the armies of Israel, they hid. Whenever he would come out and, and blaspheme God, all the Israelites would hide because they were scared of him. How is David described? Look down at verse 33. This is King Saul speaking to David. He says, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. When you look at David, here is a young man. How young? I don't know. But it's a man who hasn't seen a lot of war, probably. It's a man who, who doesn't have the experience of a soldier. This is not a man you want to send against a champion. We'll try down verse 38. I have to chuckle when I think about this because it makes me laugh in my head. So after David tells Saul about how he killed the lion, he killed the bear, God was with him, Saul finally lets him go. And in verse 38 it says, So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. You know, this is my, my mind is Saul... <laughs> Let's try to give you at least a fighting chance, right? <laughs> you know, let's, let's give you something, a little something that's going to equal out. Now, remember, remember Saul's description. He was said to be a head taller than everybody else. You know, I don't, I don't get the picture in my mind that Saul was just a slouch. So get this picture of this young man. He's got this helmet on. He's got this armor. And it says he tried to walk. You know, I just get this picture of David coming out. and He's, he's got all this armor and just... You know, he can't even move because it's so heavy. He's not used to it. And he tries to be a little diplomatic here, right? Because look what he says. David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. Like I said, I think that's David's diplomatic way of saying, I can't move in this stuff. 
I, I can't use this. And can you just not get Saul's reaction of, oh, what are we doing here? I'm sending a shepherd against a warrior. I'm sending a young man against a man who has fought since he was young. Oh, this isn't going to be good. On paper, did David stand a chance? You know, on paper, when, when you did just a side-by-side comparison of them, who was going to win? <laughs> well, obviously Goliath, right? I mean, there's no way that David had a chance against Goliath. And that's true, had it not been for God. We know this story. In verse 46, we have some, of the, some good trash talking between Goliath and David. Am I a dog that you come out with, against me with sticks? I'm going to take your head and I'm going to feed your body to the birds. <laughs> That's some good trash talk. But in verse 46, David says, look at the end of verse 46. He says, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. We know the song, right? Only a little boy David went down to the babbling brook. Only a little boy David five smooth stones he took. One little stone went into the sling and around and around it went. One little stone went up, up, up and the giant came tumbling down. We know that story. I know I messed it up. Don't, it didn't rhyme. But we know that story. We know what happens. David's able to win. Why was he able to win? Because God provided him the victory. Very quickly, when it comes back up very quickly some lessons that we can learn from us God is truly the one who provides us the victory tell you what technology is great when it works and when it doesn't work that's when it gets really fun we must always remember that God is victorious Remember in John 16, verse 33, when Jesus says, In the world you will have trouble, but be not dismayed. I have overcome the world. God is victorious. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, God tells us, John tells us, that this is the victory, our faith. What's that song we always sing? Faith is the victory. It is. It overcomes the world. Another lesson we need to understand, and we kind of pointed this out earlier, being a Christian doesn't mean that we just sit around. Being a Christian means we have to be active. We have to be doing. James 1 verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Be active. Be doing something. Because remember in Matthew 7, as Jesus is talking about the wise and the foolish man, what separates them? The wise man was those who heard the words, of, heard the sayings of Jesus, and did them. The foolish man was the one who heard, but ignored. We have to be active. We have to be doing. Let us never forget that with God on our side, who can be against us? If God is with us, there's nothing that we can achieve. But understand, the opposite of that is true as well. And what I mean by that is, if God is against us, what hope of victory do we have? In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot help, 
nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sin and your iniquity have separated you from your God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, if God is against us, what can we do? There's no hope of victory then. I think we need to be reminded that there is truly nothing that God cannot do. I've said this before, and it was kind of funny. I was thinking about doing a series on this, and then Chris talked about how one of the preachers he knew had done a series very similar, and I didn't want to copy that, but it's been long enough. I might do this. But you think about those songs that we sing as kids, right? Can I suggest to you this morning that this is not just a kid song? That we as adults, we need to be reminded of this too. You remember that song, don't you? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. No matter how big a problem may seem, God can overcome it. He can. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I do. But I'm afraid that as we get older, we start rationalizing our head, well, God can't can't fix this. You know, well, the doctors told me that there's no hope. Or, or, or there's, there's this situation and it just seems so hopeless. There's nothing my God cannot do. Last question I'll ask you. If God is providing victory, don't you want to be on the winning side? If God is providing victory, don't you want to be on the winning side? Remember what James tells us in James 4 and verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 and verse 24, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will love the one and despise the other, or be loyal to one, or you will love one. How many times have we quoted that verse and this is the time I'm going to mess it up? Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or the world. You can't have it both ways. you got to pick a side. I'd like to end this morning by reading one more passage. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Remember when I asked you what kind of victory does God provide? Revelation is a book that has been misused, misunderstood, and just made out to say things that it just does not say. You know me, I love to oversimplify things. I, fo- I fully follow the KISS principle. Keep it simple. I've told you this before, but if you want the one sentence explanation of Revelation, here it is. Bad things are going to happen. It's going to look like Satan's going to win, but God is victorious. That's the one sentence that that's that's the one sentence explanation of Revelation. Now there's more to it. I, I get that, but that's what the book is about. The end battle. How many times do we hear people refer to that? The end of times, the last battle, the Gog and Magog and all this stuff that's going to happen. 
I want to start reading in verse 7 of chapter 20. It says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Man, that sounds bad, doesn't it? That sounds like a... Who can beat that army? You've got Satan leading it. You've got people from all over all nations as the sands of the seashore. Who can fight that, that army? And verse 9, They went up to the, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Oh, it looks even worse now. They are completely surrounded. God's people look like they're about to be overran. They're about to be destroyed. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. You know, for all the, the talk of Armageddon, of this great battle that's going to happen, God ends it in one sentence, doesn't he? Fire came from heaven and Satan was defeated. You want to talk about a total victory? A victory that was never in doubt? That is the victory that God provides. This morning, do you want a part of that victory? Do you want to win? Once again, we, we always talk about how, you know, it doesn't matter if you win or lost, it's how you played the game, and there is some truth to that. Don't misunderstand me. But do we not all understand that it's more fun to win? I think that's a lesson that we're afraid to teach kids nowadays. It's more fun to win. It is. It is. That's just the way it is. You don't believe me, go play on a team where you lose every game and see how it feels. Not that fun, is it? Winning is better. God has promised us we can win. We can have victory. So once again, I'll ask you, whose side are you on? If you're here this morning and, and you're not, you've not been on God's side, you haven't been following His orders, you haven't put on the armor of, uh, armor of God, then, then we're here to help you. God's Word is here. We'll pray with you, we'll pray for you, we'll do anything that we can. If you're here this morning and you need to start that life of a Christian soldier by being buried in the waters of baptism, see here's water, what hinders you from being baptized? This morning, if there's anything that we can do to help you, if there's anything that's separating you from God, will you make your life right? We offer the invitation, if you're subject to it, will you let us know as we stand and as we sing this song?